We've been talking for the last few weeks about being living sacrifices, how it involves being part of a body, how it involves love that is unhypocritical, not two-faced. All right, you might be thinking, in an ideal world, yeah, but my world isn't ideal. It's hard. It's pressured. It sometimes feels dark and depressing. Does God really expect me to live like that? Does he really want me to offer myself as a living sacrifice, even when I'm finding things hard? And if he does, what does that even look like? How can we be living sacrifices when things are tough? Well, God has an answer through Paul as he turns his attention to exactly that in here in verse 12. These three commands in one verse, apart from making a great three-point sermon, have one thing in common. They talk about what to do when things are tough. They talk about how to live as a Christian, how to be a living sacrifice in a less-than-ideal world. All the while keeping our integrity and not losing our minds. Now I should say from the outset, offering our lives as living sacrifices won't save us. They won't put us in God's, that won't put us in God's good books. Faith alone in Jesus' death does that. This, if you remember from verse 1, is a response to that marvellous rescue. His wonderful mercy towards us, giving us what we don't deserve. This is not meriting God's favour. And if you want to hear more about that, then please look at the first half of Romans or listen to the talks from there. But we're going to look at this morning, how do we rightly respond to his mercy when times are hard? So we've got three points this morning. As I say, it makes a good three-point sermon. The first one is be positive. Be positive. Have a look at verse 12 again, just the first part. Rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. Paul tells us here to rejoice. Now there are two words in the Bible for rejoice. One is related to boasting, glorying. The other is related to the word to cheer. Be of good cheer, be cheered up. The word here is that second one. Be cheered in hope, says Paul. Rejoice in it. Find your joy in it. There are plenty of reasons, aren't there, to be negative, to lose your cheer, to let go of your joy. But here is one to be cheered by. Hope. Hope that will cheer the heart, brighten the gloomiest face, make Eeyore jump for joy, make Puddleglum raise an eyebrow. Amazing hope. But hope in what, though? Well, I never tire of saying that hope in the Bible means almost the opposite of what it does in English. In English, you hope for something that possibly or probably won't happen. How do you know it's going to be sunny tomorrow? I don't. I just hope it will. Whereas in the Bible, hope is something certain, but in the future. How do you know it's going to be sunny tomorrow? Well, we live in the Sahara Desert and it's drought season. It's going to be sunny. It's something certain. It's just in the future. And he's saying that even when everything is going wrong around you, even when your circumstances contrive to get you down, 
there is something certain coming. The thought of which will lift your spirits. There is a hope that is steadfast and certain. A solid hope. An anchor cast into the future to steady us in the present. What is that hope that will steady us, that we can rejoice in? Is it just hope in anything? Hope in hope? Any dream will do? Well, Paul has already told us earlier in Romans what that hope is. It's hope in the glory of God. That's what he says in Romans 5 verse 2. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But I don't know about you, but I sort of think that phrase is almost as obscure, isn't it? It doesn't really tell us that much more. What does he mean by hoping in the glory of God? Well, the glory that he's talking about is made clearer in Romans 8. Let me just abridge for you Romans 8, 20 to 25. For the creation was subjected to futility in hope that it would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation's been groaning in the pains of childbirth, and not only the creation, but we ourselves groan as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. The hope of the glory of God is the glory that we will share with God when all things are made new. It is the hope for the new creation, when creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and will be given bodies that are no longer subject to suffering and decay as well. When believers will spend eternity with God, adopted as sons and heirs into his family. That is the hope that we have. That is the light at the end of the tunnel. And that's what we're to rejoice in, that hope. As we think about the future, as we think about that glorious future that God has prepared for us, we're to let it cheer us. We're to let it revive us when we're down. One day we will share in the very glory of God. We will shine with purity and holiness. One day we will be with Christ forever. Faith will give way to sight. Every moment spent for Christ vindicated. Every insult and sneer taken for Christ compensated a hundredfold. One day our struggles will be over and we will have joy everlasting with Christ. And what Paul is saying is let those thoughts sustain you. Let that hope bring you joy in the present, in the midst of sorrow. Let it bring you peace in the midst of turmoil. Abound in hope by the Holy Spirit. Abound in joy. Rejoice in hope. And we're to do this as, just as Jesus did. The scriptures tell us in Hebrews that he did it for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. He looked forward to what was coming and let it sustain him through that trouble. It might be hard now, but you can still be positive. You can still have hope even when things are tough. 
The future is brighter than you can imagine for those who trust in Christ. So that's our first point. Be positive. There's hope ahead, isn't there? That's how we cope. Our second point is be patient. Be patient. Have a look at the second part of verse 12. Be patient in tribulation. Be patient in tribulation. Paul tells us that we need to be patient in hard times. Now the word be patient literally means to remain behind. So Jesus in Luke 2, when Jesus visits Jerusalem with Mary and Joseph, Luke writes uh, in Luke 2, and when the feast was ended as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. That word stayed behind is the same word. It's the idea of remaining, enduring. It's what Job does in James 5.11. It's what love does in 1 Corinthians 13. It's a keeping on, keeping on. A stamina, a fortitude. And we're to do that in the midst of tribulations. Now that word tribulation sounds very foreboding, doesn't it? It sounds very sort of, whoa, makes us think of end time stuff and all that kind of thing. But the word literally means pressures. It comes from the word to crowd. It's the idea of being crushed, mobbed, swamped. I think many of us can associate with those feelings, can't we? Of feeling mobbed and crushed and enclosed. What does God call us to do in those circumstances under pressure? Not ace it. Not turn your stresses into successes or any of that sort of psychobabble. Not float above it like a pink fluffy cloud. But to endure it. To patiently endure. To keep going. To remain. To stand. That's what God wants us to do. And sometimes just that is a miracle all by itself. Just to keep going under the pressures that are thrown at us. Just to keep standing and keep trusting in Jesus throughout. That's what Job did. That's why he's mentioned in James 5, James 5, 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We're supposed to take Job as an example of what to do, of steadfastness, the same word. How to patiently endure. How not to fall to sin under the weight of crushing pressures. So Job is an example of that. But our ultimate example again is Christ. The same verse that I quoted earlier from Hebrews 12. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Endured that same word that we've got in our passage here. Jesus ensured that as he offered himself as a, a sacrifice, he kept going. He endured as he did that, despite the pain and pressure. And so should we, as we lay down our lives, 
as living sacrifice. He did it as he laid down his life. And we do it as we lay down our life too. Perhaps you feel under pressure at the moment. Things have felt a lot harder this past year, haven't they? I know that some of us are dealing with bereavements. Some of us are dealing with work pressures. Some of us are dealing with family pressures. Others are dealing with health pressures. Keep going, says Paul. Remain. Stand. How? Well, the clues are in the verses around, or the phrases around. Three, three things. The first we've already seen. When circumstances are hard, we can still find something to rejoice in. We can still rejoice in the hope that is to come in the future. Like the woman in labour. Like the long-distance runner, the present may not be pleasant, but the future will be glorious. So that's the first thing. Keep your mind on the future, the hope. The second is that we pray. That's the command after this one. If there's one hard, uh, one thing hard times teaches, it's to pray. I mean, think about it. Even the atheist prays given enough hardship. How much more should the believer so we need to remember to pray. We'll come to that again in a minute. And then lastly, it's not immediately around it, but it's there in Romans. Consider the outcome of our pressures and sufferings. After saying that we should rejoice in hope in Romans 5, Paul goes on to say this. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that our sufferings produce endurance and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What he's saying there is that suffering with the help of the Holy Spirit produces endurance. It builds our suffering muscles, so to speak, which in the end gives us more hope. A certainty that we will endure, that we've been there before, we've got through trials before, we can face them again. You know, when I look at some of the things that have happened to me in my life, I'm astounded in one sense that my faith is still intact. But it is. And that gives me hope. I can endure because I've endured before. So consider its outcome as you live in difficult times and endure keep going so that's our, our second point to uh, be patient the last thing we're told to do when times are hard is be persistent have a look at verses have a look at verse 12 again at the end I'll read the whole thing rejoice in hope be patient in tribulation be constant in prayer Paul tells us to be persistent in prayer. It literally means to be steadfast towards prayer. It's translated be devoted to, that same phrase in Acts 2 and Acts 6. So, and they were, uh, and they, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Acts 6. But we, the apostles, will devote ourselves uh, to the ministry of the word, sorry, to prayer and to the ministry of the word. It's also translated continue steadfastly in Colossians 4, 
So Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. It's the idea of being devoted to keep going at it, being persistent. And did you notice that in all three of those key verses, prayer is mentioned as one of the things, or the only thing, that we're to be steadfast towards, that we're to be persistent in. Why would it be that it's there so many times, if you like, in those key places? Do you think it could be because this is an area that we tend not to persist in? Could it be that prayer is one of the hardest areas to do this? No, that can't be right, can it? Because nobody struggles with prayer, do they? I hope you can see the sarcasm in my eyes or hear it in my voice. Think about it. Even Jesus teaches us in the the teaching that he gives about persisting in prayer. In Luke 18, he tells the parable of the persistent widow. Why? He tells us, Luke 18 verse 1, that they are always to pray and not lose heart. Even Jesus thought this was really important for his disciples to hear. And again, think about it. He lived that, didn't he? He prayed to his father, even in really hard times. He prayed to his father, even as he hung on the cross. Even as he felt abandoned, forsaken by God, he still managed not to give up praying. But prayer is an area where there is a real danger that we'll lose heart and give up. Even in tough times, even though in one sense it it often causes us to pray, there's a danger that actually we'll give up on it in those tough times, that we'll neglect the means that God has given us to keep going. We can lose heart, and prayer often becomes the first thing to go. Now I'm aware as I'm saying this that there may be some of our number who have already lost heart. Actually, you've already given up on prayer altogether. It's hard to gauge with prayer because I can't see what's going on in people's hearts. I can't see what's going on in people's private prayer lives. One area I can look at is the public corporate expression of prayer as a church. The prayer meeting. And if that's it, then actually as a church we're not doing very well. obeying obeying this command to persist in prayer. Consistently, our prayer meeting is the worst attended of any activity that we put on at any time. I've been here for the last seven and a half years, and that's always been the case the whole time that I've been here. Even during the height of the crisis, when there was literally nothing else to do on an evening, our prayer meetings were still less attended, less well attended than a Bible study. And it grieves me. It genuinely does. This is part of our culture that needs to change when we relaunch. Not because we're superstitious about prayer. Not because we secretly think that God can't do it without us. But because again and again in the Bible, God tells us to pray. I suspect for many of us it comes back to that issue of hypocrisy which, if you remember, pervades this whole section. You know, I don't pray in private, so it seems wrong to pray in public. I've had those thoughts before. After all, didn't, didn't Jesus condemn the Pharisees for that kind of thing? You know, Matthew 6, verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, 
For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Okay, you might say, well yeah, that is the danger of hypocrisy. But you're only keeping half the lesson really, because it goes on. Matthew 6 verse 6, but when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees you in secret will reward you. Now for a start, praying on a street corner is not, uh, sorry, a prayer meeting is not praying on a street corner. And Well, at the moment it might be, under normal circumstances it's not praying on a street corner. But second, aren't, aren't we being just as much a Pharisee if we follow the rules while ignoring the spirit in which those rules were given. Using a command that Jesus gives about how to pray as a reason not to pray. Think about that. Jesus isn't giving this teaching that we stop praying altogether. He's not teaching us not to pray together. The prayer that he taught his disciples begins with the word our, our father, implying that we're going to be praying it with others. No, he's teaching us that when we do pray, we do it in an unhypocritical way. Not as an act or as a performance. Not to win the praise of people. What really needs to happen to avoid hypocrisy here is that you pray in private as well as in public. It's not that we just stop praying altogether in private and in public. So let me give you three suggestions for private prayer that can overflow into public prayer. This whole three things is becoming a bit of a thing, isn't it? Three things. Number one, go for achievable over inconceivable. Go for achievable over inconceivable. If you're starting from scratch, if you're rebuilding your prayer life and you aim for an hour a day, what will happen is that you will feel guilty if you only pray for 10 minutes. I imagine most of us would struggle to pray for an hour alone just by ourselves. That's another great reason to go to a prayer meeting, because you can, anyway, less nagging. But if you aim for five minutes and you achieve it, or you do 10 minutes, actually, you'll feel more likely to retry again tomorrow. So go for something sustainable, achievable. Let yourself grow into it, rather than set yourself such a high bar that you fall at the first hurdle and never get back up again. So go for the achievable rather than inconceivable. Secondly, go for rhythms over times. Unless you live a super regimented life, go for rhythms rather than time slots. Time slots says, right, at 8.05, I will pray until 8.15. Rhythm says, I will pray while I brush my teeth. Or I'll pray when I get up. Times says I will pray three times a day. Rhythm says I will pray every time I sit down to eat for a few minutes. Times says I will have an extended prayer time every month. Rhythm says I will have an extended prayer time whenever I'm driving for half an hour or so in the car by myself to visit my mum. Health and safety warning, if you do pray in the car, don't close your eyes uh, if you're driving. Rhythms tend to work better, and rhythms tend to form habits quicker. 
It could be as simple as, I will pray for a few minutes before I go to sleep tonight. That's not ideal because there's a danger of falling asleep, but it's a start. So go for rhythms rather than times if you're struggling. Then thirdly, go for the Bible over lists. Go for the Bible over lists. Controversial, I know. I alternate a bit between the two. But on the whole, I think using the Bible to help our prayer is better if we struggle at prayer. Why? Because list prayers tend to feel more like a duty rather than a conversation. And they also tend to turn out quite samey, in my humble opinion. Maybe it's just me, but there have been points in my prayer life when I, I start to pray like this. You know, I, I pray for Fred, that you'll bless him, whatever he's doing. And I pray for Frida, that you'd bless her, whatever she's doing. Does that sound familiar? Why not just open your Bible? It doesn't have to be seven chapters. Just a verse is often enough, depending on what book you're in. Why not work through the section of Romans that we've been looking at, verse by verse, and see what the Spirit leads you to pray for yourself and others? Any of the New Testament letters are great fuel for a dying or dead prayer life. Not so much books like 1 Chronicles, unless you have friends with names like Hanok, Palu, Hezron and Kami, for example. In which case, reading those verses might remind you to pray for them. But then again, you're probably going to have the same problem. You know, Father God, we pray for Hanok, that you bless him, whatever he's doing. But seriously, in most cases, I find that it helps. And it often gives you something obvious to pray for. And if it's not obvious, then just move on to another verse. Okay, actually, just one bonus one as well. Here we go. Just to stop the three thing becoming a thing. Bonus one. If you're still struggling after all that, then try writing your prayers as you pray. Pray them as you write them down. At times when I find it hard to pray, I found this so, so useful. When I'm struggling to speak to God, I find it easier to write down what I want to say. In the same way that people who are struggling to speak face to face often write to each other, don't they? Or text each other. It's less intense and it allows you to think through what you want to say. It also reminds me that it's real. I'd write a letter to a friend, whereas I wouldn't speak to them in my head. It reminds me that I'm speaking to a real person. So just a few words of advice there to help us in our private prayers, to help us persist and keep going. But whether you take them or not, what matters here is to be persistent in prayer. Don't give up on praying, especially when things get hard. Times can get tough as a believer, can't they? Pressures can mount and the world can begin to look gloomy. But in the midst of that, we can still be positive, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God that we'll share with him. We can still be patient, keeping on, keeping on with the Spirit's help through trials and tribulations. And we can still be persistent in prayer. We must, if we're to keep going. Prayer is our vital link to the Father. It's not an ideal world, but remember one day it will be. That is our hope. So let's keep persevering in the meanwhile, anchored to that hope, depending on God while we wait, and looking forward to what he's going to do with us in the future. Let's pray together.
Father God, we pray that you give us the strength to do this. Father, give us the strength to keep going, even when we're finding things hard. Father, help us to be patient and positive and persistent in our prayers. Father, we find these things so hard. So, Father, give us help by your Spirit. Uh, Father, send him to help us. And, Father, pray that we might honour you, even in tough times, and offer ourselves as living sacrifices to you in view of all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.